Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the first bill passed by the new Republican House to cut all but $8 billion from the $80 billion allocated in the Inflation Reduction Act aimed at improving the IRS's ability to collect owed taxes from tax cheats, corporations and wealthy individuals. Coming from the party of deficit hawks, this makes no sense since cutting revenues increases the deficit. Joining us is Steve Rosenthal, a senior fellow in the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Centre at the Urban Institute, who researches, speaks and writes on a range of federal income tax issues. He was previously staff director of the D.C. Tax Revision Commission, practiced tax law in Washington, D.C. for over 25 years, and was a legislative counsel with the Joint Committee on Taxation where he helped draft tax rules for financial institutions, financial products, capital gains, and related areas. We will discuss his article at the Washington Post, Trump's Taxes Are Exhibit A, in the case of why the IRS needs a big upgrade. Then we'll speak with Kenneth Roth, the former Executive Director of Human Rights Watch, one of the world's leading international human rights organizations, which operates in more than 90 countries. Previously, he served as a federal prosecutor in New York and for the Iran-Contra investigation in Washington, D.C. He has conducted numerous human rights investigations and missions around the world and has written extensively on a wide range of human rights abuses, devoted special attention to issues of international justice, counterterrorism, and the foreign policies of major powers and the work of the United Nations. We'll discuss his article at The Guardian, I Once Ran Human Rights Watch, Harvard Blocked My Fellowship Over Israel. Then finally, we will look into how 11 of the 17 new Republican heads of House committees are election deniers who voted against certifying Biden's victory, many of who supported and still support the insurrection. Joining us to discuss whether it is possible to work around the legislative terrorists, as former Republican Speaker Boehner called them, is Laura Rodriguez, Vice President of Government Affairs at the Center for American Progress, Previously, she was a chief of staff for her hometown Florida Congresswoman, Representative Debbie Mukasel-Powell, and also worked as a senior advisor for U.S. Senator Bill Nelson of Florida, advising him on Latino policy, outreach, and media. She also spent a year as the chief of staff of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute and spent five years at the United States State Department Legislative Affairs Bureau under the Obama administration, where she ended up her tenure as Deputy Assistant Secretary for House Affairs. And joining us now is Steve Rosenthal, who's a senior fellow at the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center at the Urban Institute, who researches, speaks, and writes on a range of federal income tax issues. He was previously staff director of the D.C. Tax Revision Commission, practiced law in Washington, D.C. for over 25 years, and was a legislative counsel with the Joint Committee on Taxation, where he helped draft tax rules for financial institutions, financial products, capital gains, and related areas. And he has an article at the Washington Post, Trump's taxes are Exhibit A in the case of why the IRS needs a big upgrade. Welcome to Background Briefing, Steve Thank Rosenthal. Thank you, Ian. Happy to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Stephen. Yesterday, the House Republicans made their first priority to vote to slash the 80 plus billion dollars approved by Congress last year in the Inflation Reduction Act to upgrade the IRS's ability to collect revenues, particularly from the wealthy who don't pay their fair share of taxes. 
So that is the new House Republicans' priorities and the new chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, Representative Jason Smith, Republican of Missouri, said that the new IRS commissioner should plan, quote, plan to spend a lot of time before the committee answering questions. So that might well fall in the definition of legislative terrorism, which seems to be what this new House is all about. And, of course, uh, Jason Smith is one of, out of the 17 new chairs of committees, 11 of them are election deniers who believe in the big lie and who voted not to certify President Biden's victory. So this is what we have. But sending that signal to the American people that, I mean, do they believe that the American people think it's a great idea not to pay your taxes and therefore not to fund a government and therefore you have no money for Social Security, Medicare or the military? I mean, where's the reality here? I'd like to get to that. Well, Ian, uh, there's a lot of politics around uh, taxes. And I'm a firm believer, uh, as a former Supreme Court justice once said, uh, whose words are now inscribed on the entranceway to the IRS, uh, taxes are the price we pay for civilization. And I believe we need to collect the taxes that are due in order to fund uh, the services that we all require. Uh, But there's a really strong anti-tax sentiment expressed both in cutting tax rates and creating loopholes, but also in collecting the taxes that are due. Uh, And I think that's a shame and short-sighted. But do you think that the Republicans have support within the country? I mean, do we know whether the American people just, you know, hate the IRS blindly and don't think they should pay their taxes? Or is there a majority of sensible people in this country who recognize that taxes are the means by which a government functions? Well, um, I think there's a large segment of the public that still expresses uh, confidence in the IRS, as well as uh, the responsibility of citizenry to pay taxes. I think there's a large segment that still believes uh, that. Uh, but but it's a hard, it, you know, it's, it's it's hard to stand up for the IRS. Uh, they, they are an easy target. And the last time uh, the Republicans took uh, the, the House of Representatives, uh, they started slashing uh, the IRS budget uh, almost immediately. And after a decade, the, the IRS budget was uh, 23% uh, less in real terms. Enforcement was down 26%. And that creates a lot of problems, especially as we load the IRS up with a lot of responsibilities, uh, not just collecting uh, taxes, but also administering social programs, in effect, uh, earned income tax credits, some of the Obama pe- uh, Obamacare credits. Uh, and so the IRS has had to do more with less for quite a while. And the areas in which we see the IRS falling down, uh, in my view, are, are the areas that are harder to accomplish. Uh, that is auditing uh, wealthy business owners and corporations, because oftentimes their tax returns and their financial affairs are quite complicated, and it's hard for the IRS uh, to pursue and collect the right amount of taxes. But it's important. So, Steve Rosenthal, is there a connection, therefore, 
We know we have money-driven politics. We know that our legislators spend most of their days dialing for dollars. And so is it possible here that the new Republican House are taking care of their big donors who don't want to pay taxes? And as you pointed out, since they came in and when the Republicans took over the House in 2010, they slashed the IRS's budget to the point where there was a 26% drop in the auditing of wealthy individuals and corporations. So it's hard for me not to see a connection there. Well, there's certainly a consistency in the Republican assault on the IRS, our tax collectors. And I am truly troubled by that assault because what happens is uh, we've seen a slashing of the IRS budget and a demonizing of IRS employees. Uh, The consequence often is the IRS performs less well. And uh, many in Congress, uh, those on the uh, House Republican side especially, uh, react by slashing the IRS budget further and demonizing IRS employees even further. It's quite a vicious cycle. Uh, Now, you try to tie to uh, their constituents. Uh, That's a little hard to tie. I don't. I can't explain the populism of today's House Republicans, the conservative side of the Republican Party. When I helped Congress draft tax legislation 30 years ago, I worked for the nonpartisan Joint Committee on Taxation. Uh, Republicans and Democrats were unified, pretty much, that we needed to collect the taxes that were owed, and funding the IRS was an important priority. Uh, that's no longer true. You could see from the House vote to rescind the $80 billion uh, that was given to the IRS, that Republicans unanimously voted for that and Democrats voted against that. And so I I think it's fair to say that the Republicans uh, believe in slashing and gutting the IRS uh, more than Democrats. Uh, I think I could say that even from a nonpartisan perspective. So let's talk then, Steve Rosenthal, about what's really happening here and whether or not this is just posturing uh, because there's no way in the world that the Democratic controlled Senate and the White House are going to go along with this bill passed on Sunday by the Republicans. So does that mean that the I thought it was 82 billion, but if it's 80 billion, does that mean that the 80 billion is still safe and and will go to the IRS and, Ian, and improve no, I, uh, tax collection? No, Ian, I don't think that the 80 billion is safe. Uh, first, uh, just to, to clarify, as a technical matter, uh, they, the, I, the uh, House Republicans only intend to rescind 72 of the $80 billion. Uh, they were going to leave a little bit of money, $8 billion, for um, a computer upgrades and uh, so, some, some uh, IRS taxpayer services. Uh, but overwhelmingly, uh, 72 of the $80 billion uh, would be rescinded under the House pass bill. Saying that, uh, no, uh, the House bill could not pass the Senate, and uh, President Biden already promised to veto it. The problem that we're in is that uh, the House Republicans are looking for leverage uh, to pursue uh, their agenda, uh, an agenda that includes, at the top, uh, slashing the IRS budget. Uh, As you can see, the first substantive tax legislation that the House passed was cutting the IRS budget, rescinding the extra money that was to make up for the shortfall 
over the last 10, 12 years. Now, the House Republicans will have leverage. Um, not so much the normal horse trading you might expect to see legislation enacted, but more hostage taking. Uh, for instance, the debt ceiling. The House Republicans are insisting that they want spending cuts and perhaps other items like uh, a cut to the IRS budget uh, as a condition to lift uh, the debt ceiling. The debt ceiling is sort of a silly argument because um, the debt that we have outstanding uh, amounts to liabilities that arose for prior enacted legislation. And it's somewhat of an artificial notion that as we uh, run up additional debt for obligations that have been authorized previously, that we yet have to take another pass at lifting the debt ceiling. That's largely a formality, or at least as a formality when President Trump was in the office because the Republicans voted for it. But now the House Republicans are threatening uh, to vote against increasing uh, the, the debt, which might yet create a financial crisis. Uh, the last time the Republicans threatened uh, not to raise the debt, uh, th that increased the cost of borrowing and, and cost, I forgot how many billions of dollars, but there was an estimate out there. Uh, this time the stakes are much higher, uh, and in part it's because uh, the Republicans are just so so more intent on, on achieving uh, their agenda, even in the absence of having a majority vote. And so um, the IRS cut would not pass the House if it was just left uh, uh, to stand on its own or be enacted in the law passing the Senate. But given that the House Republicans have been captured by a fringe element uh, who insist on some pretty radical approaches uh, to governing, which is we're going to blow everything up unless we get our way. Uh, hard to see how this unfolds. It's very uncertain. Right. But as I mentioned earlier, this is I'm, I'm quoting John Boehner. This is legislative terrorism, and the leopard's not going to change its spots, right? These guys are going to do what they do. So is there any way that the Senate and the White House can continue to make the United States government function in the face of these obstructionists? Well, uh, all of it, it's a question of leverage. And it's just hard to, uh, hard to predict how uh, things will unfold. Uh, in past crises, uh, the House uh, Republicans, for instance, who held up budgets, shut down the government, including our national parks, uh, they paid a political price uh, for holding the operations of the government hostage uh, for a, a political gain. Uh, and I suppose they'll pay a political price as well if they hold our debt ceiling or our budgets this year hostage. Having said that, uh, hard to say how this unfolds, whether some Republicans uh, uh, shift uh, and work with Democrats uh, to advance legislation, including spending uh, for the government, or whether the Republicans just operate you know, by hostage taking. And I can't really tell you how this will unfold. It's not a pretty picture. And we'll see how, we'll see how the Congress reacts going forward. Well, I guess what I'm asking, Steve, is that you pointed out that this is all about leverage. On the other hand, I'm wondering what kind of counter leverage that the Senate and the House and the White House have 
or are we just going to be at a stalemate? Well, I'm not sure stalemate is the right word. Um, uh, it's 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 a face-off in, a, in effect. Um, the, the president and leaders in the Senate already have announced that there'll be uh, no negotiating over items like increasing uh, the, the, the debt ceiling, which is a necessity for our economy uh, to function properly and for the world financial system to avoid disaster. And so uh, that's their opening position. On the other hand, there certainly are a large number of House Republicans who believe that the only way they will agree to increase the debt ceiling uh, or even uh, pass a budget to run the government uh, turns on extracting concessions. And so, again, I, I can't really predict. Uh, and I think ultimately it, it turns on uh, how the market reacts, how the constituents of the Republicans respond, uh, how Republican leaders uh, view uh, this, the unfolding situation as a net gain for them politically or a net minus. And maybe that in turn uh, depends on how Republican constituents look at the world. Um, whether they view um, the Republicans to blame if, in fact, um, the economy blows up. But we live in such a divided time. We have uh, a lot of uh, uh, Republican conservative constituencies uh, watching propaganda uh, channels. Uh, so that the, it's quite amazing. I, I watch sometimes and uh, the content is, is so abysmal that there's no reality to it. It's an alternative universe. And I like to listen just so I can understand how everyone views the world. And I'll speak with anyone uh, if I'm invited, uh, but it's hard for me to say that uh, people like, like I uh, either can break through or a balanced audience uh, exists to, to, to genuinely evaluate what's happening. In any event, uh, uh, th these are very you know, large matters and, 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 and problems and it's again, again, I don't see much of a legislative agenda for the House Republicans uh, other than to, to, to try to extract concessions, you know, on on spending and budgets for the IRS, uh, perhaps spending on prosecutors going after President Trump. Uh, and can they extract it? It turns on the leverage. It turns on the public's reaction. So just in the last couple of minutes, then Steve Rosenthal, the fact that the IRS is so outgunned by the wealth protection industry, by big corporate lawyers and others, and that, as you point out in your article at the Washington Post, Trump's taxes are Exhibit A in the case of why the IRS needs a big upgrade. That is the current situation. Is it likely to continue, or can some of this money for the IRS boost their ability to start extracting taxes and stopping all of these loopholes, which Trump perfected the ability to lose copious amounts of money in order not to pay taxes? Uh, yes. Uh, I think the $80 billion will start to turn around uh, the fiasco uh, that the IRS currently faces. And the solution to taxpayers who are aggressive and trying to dodge taxes in the first instance, is to get the IRS to enforce the law. We can also talk about reforming the tax law, uh, making the tax law more simple. That's always a challenge because every loophole has a constituency, but simplification 
has no constituency. And so it's very hard to get uh, more simpler rules uh, that can be administered more easily. And of course, the world is a complicated uh, place with all the different jurisdictions and the new fang fangled, fangled uh, financial products and the like. And so our taxes always are going to be complicated and will require a sophisticated IRS to administer them. And the $80 billion will go a long way towards helping the IRS administer those tax rules. And I hope the IRS can keep the money. Well, Steve Rosenthal, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Steve Rosenthal, who's a senior fellow at the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center at the Urban Institute, who researches, speaks, and writes on a range of federal income tax issues. He was previously staff director of the D.C. Tax Revision Commission, practiced law in Washington, D.C. for over 25 years, and was a legislation counsel with the Joint Committee on Taxation, where he helped draft tax rules for financial institutions, financial products, capital gains, and related areas. And he has an article at the Washington Post, Trump's taxes are Exhibit A in the case for why the IRS needs a big upgrade. We're going to take a brief station break and back speaking with Kenneth Roth, the former executive director of Human Rights Watch, about his article at The Guardian, I once ran Human Rights Watch, Harvard blocked my fellowship over Israel. Outside the patient millions Put them into power Expect a little more back for their taxes Like school books, beds in hospitals And peace in our bloody time All they get is old men grinding axes Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Kenneth Roth, the former Executive Director of Human Rights Watch, one of the world's leading international human rights organizations, which operates in more than 90 countries. Previously, he served as a federal prosecutor in New York and for the Iran-Contra investigation in Washington, D.C. He has conducted numerous human rights investigations and missions around the world and has written extensively on a wide range of human rights abuses, devoting special attention to issues of international justice, counterterrorism, and foreign policies of the major powers, and has worked for the United Nations. And he has an article at The Guardian, I once ran Human Rights Watch, Harvard blocked my fellowship over Israel. Welcome to Background Briefing, Kenneth Roth. Thanks for having me, Ian. Good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And I was just speaking the other day to a couple of uh, Israeli specialists, and there was an op-ed by the editor-in-chief of Haaretz talking about Netanyahu's new agenda now that he's a prime minister for the umpteenth time. And it's quite alarming what's happening in Israel in the sense that Netanyahu is apparently modeling his new regime on Viktor Orban. He's going after the independent judiciary, trying to muzzle the press and make sure that he stays in power in order to avoid jail. 
And I mean, admittedly, these are the progressives in Israel, and they're, maybe they're an endangered species, but nevertheless, they're saying that, you know, Israel's greatest asset is that it's a democracy, and that Netanyahu is a threat to democracy. So why are we not discussing that important issue, and why are supporters of Israel going after you? It just seems ridiculous in the context of what the real threats to Israel's democracy are. Well, Ian, you're absolutely right that um, this is a dark moment for Israel. Um, Netanyahu was determined to retake power as prime minister. Um, he, as you noted, is trying to avoid an ongoing corruption prosecution and feels that being in power is his best bet. But he basically made a pact with the devil in order to regain power. He was willing to you know, team up with extraordinarily far-right politicians who, until very recently, were considered beyond the pale, but now are members of the government and even ministers. So there is plenty to talk about in Israel. My case, though, I mean, ironically, um, my, my fellowship at the Harvard Kennedy School was rejected by the dean, Douglas Elmendorf, before Netanyahu retook office. Um, the rejection took place this past summer. Um, and, and Elmendorf was concerned with my and Human Rights Watch's criticism of Israel. Um, that was the reason that he gave to um, Professor Catherine Sickink, um, a, a very respected human rights professor affiliated with the Harvard Kennedy School, who asked, how could this guy possibly reject my fellowship? Um, I had had discussions, once I announced that I was leaving Human Rights Watch, I immediately was called by the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy, part of the Kennedy School. And they said, would I like to go there as a senior fellow? And um, it made sense. I, I'm working on a book right now. It seemed like a, a very good place to do that. I had been affiliated with the Carr Center informally in the past. So in principle, I agreed. And all that was required was for the dean to sign off, which everybody assumed would be a formality. Indeed, I contacted the dean on the assumption that I was going to be at the Kennedy School starting in September and said, look, I'm going to be there. We should get to know each other. Can we have a, a video chat? Um, he agreed, and we, we got together virtually in July and had a perfectly pleasant half-hour conversation, except right at the end. Then it got weird. He asked, kind of as we were parting, do you have any enemies? Now, this is a very strange question to ask somebody who's been heading a human rights group for three decades. I have tons of enemies. Um, the Chinese government and the Russian government have both personally sanctioned me by name. I also mentioned, you know, that the, the Saudi government, the Rwandan government, they hate me. But I had a hunch what he was driving at. Um, and I said, yes, also the Israeli government doesn't like me. And that was the kiss of death. That was our criticism of Israel was the thing that he cited in vetoing my fellowship. And even though, you know, the, the Harvard Kennedy School, if you look at their so-called diversity statement, it, it talks about how they... Um, value, um, you know, they want to welcome new ideas, even unpopular and controversial ones, so that they can be debated in an environment of mutual respect. I mean, it sounds all wonderful. But the big exception to that apparently is Israel. Um, he doesn't want criticism of Israel from fellow. 
And and you know this it's not as if I'm you know kind of coming from some crazy perspective. I mean, Human Rights Watch has been reporting on Israel for many many years, but it's you know just one of a hundred countries around the world that we regularly report on, and we apply the same objective, factual, investigative standards. We assess them under international human rights and humanitarian law, just as for everybody else. Um, we treat it just like everybody. But you know, evidently, that's not good enough for Dean Elmendorf. Um, the fact that we criticize Israel was grounds to reject my fellowship. So that's where we are. And of course, Human Rights Watch have also been very critical of the Palestinians and particularly critical of the new Prime Minister of Saudi Arabia, Crown Prince. Oh, the Crown uh, Prince Saudi, yeah, Mohammed bin Salman, yes. But no, but I, I think you're right, Ian, to point this out, that, you know, because there is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, one principle that Human Rights Watch applies in every conflict situation is that we report on all sides. That's just a basic way of highlighting our impartiality. And so, you know, yes, we criticize the Israeli government. We, we you know, need to. They commit serious abuses. But we also are highly critical of the Palestinian Authority, of Hamas, of Hezbollah. Um, we treat, you know, that conflict the way we do every other conflict where there are multiple parties. So is then the problem with Douglas Elmendorf, is he just a blind supporter of Israel no matter what? Or is he being concerned about some of the big donors whose names are on a lot of the buildings, like, for example, the Belfast Center? Yeah, the, you know, Elmendorf does not have any publicly available history of taking strong positions on Israel. So the idea that this reflected his personal prejudice, I don't think is very likely. There's just no evidence to support that. But, you know, as um, Michael Massing, the journalist who wrote this very good expose in The Nation showed, you know, there are certain big donors to the Kennedy School who are also big time supporters of Israel. Now, you know, I don't know what happened there. Um, I don't know whether Elmendorf consulted with one or more of them or whether he just anticipated their reaction. But the only plausible explanation here that anybody's been able to come up with is that this is a case of donor-driven censorship. And, you know, interestingly, you know, even though that allegation has been all over the media, the Kennedy School spokesperson, when confronted by the Harvard Crimson, um, did not deny any of the specific allegations. That was the, the language that I have been making. So he didn't, you know, mention donors by name. He just said, I don't deny the specific allegations. And you know, as for Elmendorf, who could answer these questions, he has stayed mum. He has refused to answer any questions. And he seems to just hope that he can ride out the storm. Well, but the Harvard Crimson is the newspaper of the students. So that would indicate, surely, that the student body, they want a broad education, do they not? They don't want... Absolutely. They don't want a censored one-sided education. Indeed, there was a, a very powerful letter issued today by Palestinian alumni of the Kennedy School who are appalled at what Elmendorf did and have actually called for his resignation. Now, I think that what is at stake here is really Harvard's credibility. And I think it's important because, you know, Elmendorf seems to be just trying to lie low I think it's important for the Harvard president, Lawrence Baikow, to get involved here because currently the impression is that you know Harvard donors can undermine academic freedom. 
you know, that that is devastating for Harvard's reputation. It's also, frankly, a disaster for scholars. You know, I personally, it's it's not as if this is derailing my career. I've got career options. You know, it's it's you know, it, I'm fine. But I worry about younger academics who look at this episode and they're going to conclude, oh God, if you know, if the the person who led Human Rights Watch can be, you know, canceled, denied a fellowship because of his criticism of Israel. I can't possibly criticize Israel. I've got to stay away from that. It would be a career killing move if I did. And that's just a horrible message to send. So, you know, what I'm hoping that the Harvard president will do is to recognize that he he needs to make a statement here. And I think the best thing to do would be for him to make clear that Harvard does not stand for donor driven censorship, that it will reject any donor who tries to use their financial clout to undermine academic freedom. And I say this because, you know, I had to do something similar at Human Rights Watch. In other words, there are, you know, there are many people out there who, you know, would love to give to Human Rights Watch if we would exempt from our scrutiny their favorite country. And I would never accept money on those terms. You know, that was just the price of maintaining principles, of maintaining you know, the even-handed application of international standards. So, you know, Human Rights Watch is tiny compared to, to Harvard, but I was willing to live without those funds. Harvard is the wealthiest university in the world. If anybody can stand up to donor pressure, it's Harvard. So this is the chance for Harvard to take a leadership position and for President Bacow to say, we are not going to accept contributions from any donor that wants to use his funds or her funds to undermine academic freedom. And we will prohibit it, any administrator at Harvard from even anticipating such objections as a reason to undermine academic freedom. That would be a way of, of you know, making lemonade out of this lemon and trying to salvage the situation. But surely there's a broader problem in terms of people like me who, who try to cover foreign affairs and U.S. foreign policy, we surely can't tolerate the thought police that just simply say there's a certain area of the world that you can't enter, you can't objectively examine or criticize. I mean, you've got this character running for president down in Florida, the governor DeSantis, who's talking about fighting the war against the woke. Isn't there a kind of wokeness here, a kind of an area that's forbidden that you can't discuss, or if you if you do discuss it, you have to discuss it in a certain way. I just find that offensive. It not only smacks of Ron DeSantis, but it smacks of North Korea. Well, it is offensive, Ian. And you know, I, most people think about wokeness as being you know censorship from the left. Um, this is basically censorship from the right. It's just as bad. People shouldn't be censored because of their ideas, because of their opinions, you know, even if they're controversial. And if anybody should know that, it's Harvard. So, you know, this is either going to be a terrible illustration of the limits of academic freedom, or it's an opportunity for Harvard to do the right thing and to reaffirm academic freedom in a way that matters. Well, a number of years ago, I hosted the authors of a new book about the Israel lobby, one at Harvard, Stephen Walt and John Mersheimer. And there was enormous pressure 
put on us to cancel it and then to put other people on the panel and lots of demonstrations and stuff. And at the end of the day, the two academics made their case, and it was quite civil, quite civilized, and I thought fairly non-controversial. You know, these guys aren't bomb throwers. But it was an extraordinary introduction into the fierce passions surrounding this issue and the sensitivity that some people have towards anybody that ventures to criticize Israel. I mean, Stephen Wald is still at Harvard, is he not? Yes, I believe so. Right. Yeah, no, and he, I think he's still at the Kennedy School. He at was Kennedy. under pressure not to use his Kennedy School affiliation when he published on that topic. He just ignored it and, and went forward. Right. But um, wasn't so, but I mean, he's a, he's a very he's a very you know high profile figure. Right. Um, you know, my fear is really what happens to lower profile individuals, where they can face either censorship or retaliation, and very few people notice. Right. And that um, you know that insidious censorship is something that we have to really fight against. And to use these you know kind of occasional moments where the censorship effort is highly visible to make a case, to, to learn from it, and to try to set up a positive precedent that extends beyond simply, you know, the, the case that the press has. Right. Well, but nevertheless, it seems that at this point, it's perfectly legitimate, particularly if you actually support Israel, which I do, and support the notion of Israeli democracy and plurality. And those are the very things, by the way, that are under attack from this new government. They have ministers now who are on a jihad against uh, LGBTQ people and liberals. And I mean, there's clearly a case to be made that Israeli democracy is under threat and people who care about the fact that Israel is the only democracy in that part of the world. And that's its main strength. I mean, that's a perfectly legitimate position to have, isn't it? That's not a position that could be criticized. That's a position that's actually, at the end of the day, pro-Israel. No, I agree with you that it, it's, it is pro-Israel to want Israel to be rights-respecting. And, you know, that's what this debate is about. Um, you know, when you say Israel is the only democracy in the region, I mean, I think you have to qualify that because Israel controls the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza, where um, there are millions of Palestinians who have no vote in the government that, that controls them, but certainly mm. within the green line of Israel. Sure, but I, I'm repeating but, what is often said, that it's the only democracy, and it's true that there are certain qualifications, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the, the Palestinians. But go ahead, sorry. Yeah. No, but any, I, I think your point is that these are legitimate topics of conversation. Certainly a school that claims to you know, welcome divergent points of view should be debating this. You know, that's what students want. Um, and education is hearing different points of view and learning how to, you know, choose among different arguments and analyze them and come up with your own assessment of, of what the right perspective is. That's what a Kennedy School Harvard education should provide. But if you want to censor one perspective, you're harming the students, you're harming the faculty, and you're undermining academic freedom. Well, Kenneth Roth, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me, Ian. You take care. You too. And again, I'm speaking with Kenneth Roth, who's the former executive director of Human Rights Watch, one of the world's leading international human rights organizations, which operates in more than 90 countries. 
Previously, he served as a federal prosecutor in New York and for the Iran-Contra investigation in Washington, D.C. He has conducted numerous human rights investigations and missions around the world and has written extensively on a wide range of human rights abuses, devoting special attention to issues of international justice, counterterrorism, and the foreign policies of the major powers and the work of the United Nations. And he has an article at The Guardian, I Once Ran Human Rights Watch. Harvard blocked my fellowship over Israel. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into how 11 of the 17 new Republican heads of House committees are election deniers and whether it's possible to work around these legislative terrorists. Good morning, worm your honour. The crown will plainly show the prisoner who now stands before you was caught red and showing feelings showing feelings of an almost human nature this will not do call the schoolmaster Start that show again. And if you don't like who's in there, vote them out. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Laura Rodriguez, who's the Vice President for Government Affairs at the Center for American Progress. Previously, she was the Chief of Staff for her hometown Florida Democratic Congressman, Representative Debbie Muscassel Powell, and also worked as a Senior Advisor for the U.S. Senator Bill Nelson of Florida and advised him on Latino policy, outreach, and media. She also spent a year as the Chief of Staff for the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute and later spent five years at the United States Department of State's Legislative Affairs Bureau under the Obama administration, where she ended her tenure as Deputy Assistant Secretary for House Affairs. Welcome to Background Briefing, Laura Rodriguez. Thank you so much, Ian. Great to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And the House, now dominated by a radical faction of Republicans, the Freedom Caucus, on Tuesday announced their picks for the powerful committee chairs in the Congress, and 11 out of the 17 of chairs of these new committees are election deniers who voted against the certification of President Biden's victory. And they include Representative Glenn Thompson for Agriculture Committee, Mike Rogers, Armed Services, Jody Arrington, Budget, Virginia Fox, Education and Workforce, Mark Green for Homeland Security, Jim Jordan for the Judiciary, Roger Williams for Small Business, Sam Graves for Transportation and Infrastructure, Mike Bost for Veterans, Jason Smith for Ways and Means, and Frank Lucas for Science, Space and Technology. So those are all very powerful, influential chairs. So how do we deal with this? How do you deal with the fact that we have at least part of the legislative branch, or half of the legislative branch, meaning the Congress, in control largely of people who just simply don't deal with reality. I mean, it's that frightening. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And it is frightening. Um, how, how you deal with this in the minority uh, in the House is very much twofold. So your first order of business 
is going to be making sure that you are defending the rights of the constituencies, of, of all constituencies of, of the country, right? So making sure that uh, what is being proposed by whether they're election deniers or not, this party has clearly decided that they're going to go to the extremes, um, making sure that the policies that they're proposing don't go anywhere and that they are proposing the alternative to make sure that the American people can really see the difference. What is the solution that Democrats are proposing and juxtapose that with what's coming from the Republican side? The other piece of that, of course, is that we have uh, Democrats in the majority on the Senate side that um, can helpfully be used to block any uh, extreme legislation. And then finally, of course, we have President Biden in the White House that can veto anything that could possibly get through. So I think that the Senate is going to be a pretty effective backstop to most of the things coming out. But it may be a backstop, but doesn't that imply gridlock? It absolutely does. Uh, I think that we're going to see most folks here in Washington, D.C. are very aware and realistic about the fact that there's going to be very little uh, bipartisan legislation coming through in the next couple of years. Uh, Investigations, they'll happen. Um, They'll mostly be a distraction. But as far as... um, uh, actual legislation goes, anything big, uh, I think very much both uh, in whether that's the private sector or in the party, the Democratic Party itself, um, we're very aware that there's just not going to be a lot of room for bipartisan uh, work. That being said, there are certain pieces that um, a lot of Democrats are hopeful where they can work with Republicans because there's some common ground. Um, Things like national defense, um, there's always a a very powerful and robust farm bill that usually passes. Uh, The House has said that they want to uh, do 12 appropriations bills. And while, of course, we are going to have some challenges with the budget resolution, whatever that might be when it comes, those are opportunities to also barter and negotiate things that might be wins um, for, for both sides. Well, Jim Jordan, let's take the example of Jim Jordan, who's now the chair of the Judiciary Committee, and he's going to be holding all kinds of hearings and going after the Department of Justice. He finally, after being you know harassed, if you will, by the press, or at least asked <laughs> multiple times, about his role in the insurrection and what happened on that particular day, we we learned that he made multiple phone calls to Trump while the insurrectionists were rampaging through the Capitol. And he's obviously an ardent defender of Trump. And by any reasonable definition, he's an insurrectionist. I mean, if those people are not punished for the crime against American democracy that took place a little over two years ago, which was so outrageous. Is that the problem? I mean, they're running loose without any sanctions. I mean, in any any reasonable world, the Mm -hmm. people that supported Mm -hmm. the unsupportable and defended the indefensible should be put on trial or at least have no credibility. That's what I find so troubling. When will we get some resolution there so that these people can be singled out as either criminals or aiding and betting criminals? 
Well, I think there's two things here. I think you're 100% correct. Uh, but one thing that we, you know, not unfortunately, fortunately, we have a democracy, but, you know, it has consequences when we elect certain people. And I think what we're what we're seeing, what we're going to see in the next couple of years is the Democrats and lots of other outside groups really highlighting exactly what you're talking about, which is this is what happens and this is what you get when you vote for the extreme. And it's, it's going to be the, a matter of highlighting on a daily basis what it means to have insurrectionists in our Congress. It's incredibly dangerous. On the legal side, I'm not an expert. I'm not a lawyer, um, and and I couldn't tell you exactly what the tools for the Department of Justice are against these folks. I think that those are still in the works, and unfortunately, our legal system does work very, very slowly. And so, I'm not sure that they're out of the woods just yet. And so, you know, I think we have to put that. Um, on the side, I do think that demonstrating to the American people the chaos that they bring with them and the absolute dysfunction and the extreme proposals that they're going to put forth is is going to be the work of the daily work of both the Democratic Party and outside organizations to ensure that the American people don't make the same mistake in 2024. But these characters come from gerrymandered districts where they have safe seats. That's a part of the problem. And I'm just wondering whether there's any way to dislodge them or whether mm -hmm. there's a better way to marginalize them as opposed to trying to vote them out mm -hmm. if they're in incredibly safe districts, which is what they've done through gerrymandering. And yeah. That's Absolutely. why they're not accountable. You know, it was John Boehner who described the predecessor to the Freedom Caucus, which was the Tea Party. He uh, described them as legislative terrorists. Well, I think that's an apt description. So is there an alternative mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to vote them out to at least marginalize them? Yes, absolutely. I think that there are also a lot of organizations such as the ACLU and other organizations that are um, focused on the state level legal fights on gerrymandering. Those are still being played out in many of the states. I think that's one very large issue that um, needs to be worked out in the courts. Uh, the other piece of that, though, um, I would say I wouldn't rule out voting them out. Not every single one, of course. But um, what we saw in 2022 was actually quite a, a kind of miraculous. Um, we saw people actually paying attention um, to the issues versus the party. We saw a lot of split ticket voting. Um, people who are, ne are not necessarily, they're just not on board with the extremism anymore, really started to make those decisions. And folks are paying attention to politics in a way that they never have before. They've never really wanted to, but now they're being forced to. And that is partly due to the very disciplined messaging of the Democratic Party in the last six months, nine months, letting people know these folks are going to take your personal rights away if you put them in charge. By all intents and purposes, 
they should have gotten a 20 to 30 to maybe even 40 seat majority in the house. They have a five seat majority. That is because of the work of Democrats and the candidates that were able to really show that difference. You're right. Gerrymandering is absolutely a problem. And there are some folks that we might not be able to dislodge just with voting. But I think we can make a large dent in that um, in that effort. So, Laura, what about the possibility of dealing with the, you know, I don't know what the number is. I've heard something like there are 17 reasonable Republicans that sort of reflect your father's and grandfather's GOP, because there's no question that the GOP has become radicalized. And I think it was radical before Trump came along, but he's really metastasized it into Trump's own party. And now he's got all of his people in there. And even Kevin McCarthy, by the way, profusely and unctuously thanked Trump for helping him get the speakership. So there you have a clear leverage that Trump has, and you wonder how much the tail is wagging the dog there. But Mm -hmm. the fact is that there's still some Republican chairs that aren't Freedom Caucus and election deniers, and they are Kay Granger of Texas for Appropriations, Kathy Morris-Rogers for Energy and Commerce, uh, Patrick McHenry for Financial Services, Michael McCall for Foreign Affairs, Bruce Westerman for Natural Resources, and James Comer for Oversight and Accountability. So they're not election deniers. Is there a possibility that the Democrats could work with the sensible Republicans and get something done? I mean, there there was even talk about that during the agonizing 15 rounds of voting (laughs) for McCarthy's speakership, that maybe they could put up an alternative speaker. So is that realistic? I think it is. I think that you also heard uh, the new Democratic leader, uh, Hakeem Jeffries, talk about the fact that they are looking for partners to actually get work done. I do think that you're going to see um, a concerted effort by Democrats to reach across the aisle to these folks, these handful of folks that they can work with um, and, and try to find solutions to some of these problems. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is, unfortunately, that they are a, a dying breed, but showing them it's in the Democrats' interest to show them that they can get some wins by working with them and trying to kind of de-escalate issues so that everybody, everyone gets a win, but also we encourage uh, Republicans on the moderate side, if we can call them that, or the non-election deniers to hold their ground and stick around because most of the time, as you said, we've lost so many Republicans who just could not get on board with the with the Trump wing, um, and they've just you know abandoned ship. They've left, and they're left very few Republicans to work with in the House. So I think the goal would be to try and keep as many around as possible. So just in the last minute, then Laura Rodriguez, what should our listeners do in order to stay engaged and not just sort of look at this clown show and just give up on? On government, which is, of course is a part of the the motive here. I mean, these characters on the Freedom Caucus, they're in effect in league with people like the Club for Growth. Mm-hmm. And after all, it was Grover Norquist, the head of the Club for Growth, that said 
his mission is to shrink government down to the point where you can drown it in a bathtub. Well, these guys mm -hmm. in this house don't want government to work at all, and Grover Norquist, backed by the Koch brothers and other plutocrats, they want to shrink government and cut its ability, and the first priority that the, the Republicans had is to cut the IRS funding. So it's as clear as day what's going on here. What can um, our listeners do just to you know, lobby for sanity and for the functioning of a United States government? Yeah, it's uh, it's a tough ask, but I would say that they have to they have to remain engaged in in the sense of uh, holding their members accountable, whether they have a Democratic uh, representative or a Republican representative. They cannot disengage and cannot let them think that they are able to do anything under the cover of you're not there under the cover of night or that folks are not paying attention. No more backroom deals, no more things uh, happening in the background. Hold your member accountable. Make sure that they're hearing from you. As a former staffer, I can tell you every single call that you make into that office, every email that you send into that office is going to get logged. It's going to get read. It's going to be reported to that member. So, you have to keep on them. It's it's a lot and it's exhausting, but it's what we need to do right now to save our democracy. It is where we are. Well, Laura Rodriguez, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Anna. It's a pleasure to talk to you. And again, I've been speaking with Laura Rodriguez, who's the Vice President for Government Affairs at the Center for American Progress. Previously, she was Chief of Staff for our hometown Florida Democratic Congressman, Representative Debbie McCastle-Powell and also worked as a senior advisor for U.S. Senator Bill Nelson of Florida, advising him on Latino policy, outreach, and media. She's also spent a year as a chief of staff for the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute and spent five years at the United States Department of State's Legislative Affairs Bureau under the Obama administration, where she ended her tenure as Deputy Assistant Secretary for House Affairs. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon, and this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Sing to me.